you uh, have your Bibles, we're going to open up to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And we're going to be um, really just focusing in on one verse, but uh, I want to read verses 37 through 39. John chapter 7. Verses 37 through 39. It says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, when we looked at this passage several weeks ago now, maybe more than a month ago, I said we were going to come back and look at that statement in John chapter 7, verse 39. He tells us, John tells us that when Jesus talks about this, um, this, water flowing out of, these rivers of waters flowing out of uh, the believer's belly, that he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And then the, the language here is really what we want to what we want to think about. The Holy Ghost um, uh, about those on whom uh, should receive, should receive, which means they had not yet received. And the Holy Ghost that was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so what I would like to do is look at this, and there's a couple of other uh, phrases in John that allude to the same thing, and, um, and, and just hopefully get a, get a grasp on what is he talking about here? What is the, what are the scriptures talking about here? What is the meaningful difference between the Holy Spirit's role in the Old Testament and in the New Testament or under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant? So you have, um, passages like John 7 39 that clearly say that the Spirit was going to be given in a different way after Jesus was glorified than the Spirit was before. Or you can look in John chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. It's probably easier to catch the nuance if you're looking at it. John chapter 14. In verse 16, Jesus says, I will pray the Father and He shall give you another Comforter that He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth Him uh, seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but ye know Him. And here's the little phrase. For He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now here's what you notice about this text, particularly in verse 17. Jesus says of the Spirit of truth that He dwelleth, that is present tense, He dwells with you now. 
but he shall dwell in you. Okay, so he is with the disciples now in John chapter 14, but he shall, future tense, dwell in. And so the big question is, what is he talking about? Okay. And then we look at a passage like John 20. John 20. This is after the resurrection. Jesus comes to his disciples. This is, we can start in verse 19. It says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them, Again, peace unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, again, the question is, what did they receive in John chapter 20 that they didn't already have? We know that the uh, disciples, the apostles, aside from Judas, who was not present there in John 20, we know that they believed. They believed on Jesus Christ as the Messiah. We know specifically, uh, directly uh, prior to this, we know specifically Peter makes a valid profession of faith. You remember Jesus says, who do men say to, say to I am? And then he says, and then who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, 16 through 17, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my father. Okay, And how did the father do that? Well, Again, we want to ask and, and, and look at the question this morning. What is the meaningful difference between the Spirit's role in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant? And just so, just in case we go into this and you're thinking, great, this is a sermon about splitting hairs and, and trying to do uh, mental gymnastics with, with nuances about Scripture and so forth and so on. Think about this. Let's think about what does the Spirit do? What does the Spirit do? And we could answer that in a lot of ways, but as a whole, I think this is an accurate way to think about it. The Holy Spirit facilitates the believer's relationship with God through Christ. Okay, so when we're thinking about what are the meaningful differences in the way that the Spirit worked under the Old Covenant and under the New, we're talking about the enhancements that have been made to New Covenant believers' relationship with God 
through Christ by the Spirit. Now that might not help you out much as far as the nuances go, but I just want you to know what we're talking about today and looking at these nuances directly um, have a direct uh, uh, impact on your relationship and the depth of your relationship with God through Christ. This is just not abstract stuff that doesn't really matter. Uh, this is uh, These are realities and blessings that we could go back to what we were talking about this morning in Psalm 113, that if we understand these with some clarity, then they really do elicit praise and thanksgiving as we realize what an inheritance we've been given by Christ through the Spirit. So what is this, how does the Spirit facilitate this relationship with God? Well, we're going to look at three ways. And I think categorically you can umbrella everything under these three categories. Through regeneration, through empowerment for service, and through indwelling. Okay, three areas where the Holy Spirit is facilitating the believer's relationship with God through Christ. And we could say these, these three areas are at play both in Old and New Testament. So we could, we don't have to put the through Christ part there because he was, the Spirit was doing this in some capacity, even in the Old, but some things have changed. So through regeneration, through empowering for service, and through indwelling. Um, now, I'm hoping that those structure in the message this way will make it easier um, to, uh, to stay on track and easier uh, to, to move and transition through these. We could structure it a lot of different ways. To me, the most difficult part was figuring out how do we take something that we could spend weeks on make a message out of it, and move on. Um, and so this is the way that we've decided to do it, the way I've decided to do it. Um, and so I want to look at each of these categories one by one. So number one, the Spirit regenerates. Okay? The Holy Spirit regenerates. Now, we know that, and we've talked about that, a good bit since we've been in the Gospel of John because John talks about it a good bit. So you'll remember in John chapter 3, and, and that's going to be kind of our landing place, John chapter 3, <clears throat> Jesus comes to Nicodemus. Maybe I should say Nicodemus comes to Jesus. They begin to have a conversation and Jesus teaches, talks about the regenerating work of the Spirit. He calls it being born again. So starting in verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, that's Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh and whither it goest. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered, and he said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? So a couple of, couple of realities here. Number one, when we're thinking about regeneration, primarily what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about um, the gift of spiritual life. Okay, Moving from a state of spiritual deadness to being alive. Uh, Jesus says in, in uh, John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we're talking about spiritual life here. It's being brought from death to life. It's spoken of and given several different names or metaphors. You've heard it if you've read the Old Testament much, you're familiar with the circumcision of heart, um, eyes to see, ears to hear, being born again, undergoing the new birth. The reality is that for anyone, aside from being given life through the Spirit, it is impossible to believe. Scripture's clear on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But, verse 14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, so as far as regeneration goes, in order to have... Again, spiritual life, spiritual perception, faith. You have to have had a work of regeneration in your heart, in your mind. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about this, in John chapter 3, verse 10, He says, How do you not know these things, Nicodemus? Now, the point that I want to make about regeneration is that regeneration is obviously something that happens under the new covenant. But regeneration is also something that happened under the old. Okay, this is not a new thing. Now, the Spirit has, as far as opening blind eyes and giving people spiritual perception, now I'm just using this humanly speaking, the Spirit has more ammo now than He did in the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is just, we have the full revelation of God. 
Okay, so whenever we are exercising faith, we're looking back on what Christ did. We have the full revelation. When the saints in the Old Testament were exercising faith, they were looking forward to what God would do. And they were primarily doing that through types and shadows and figures. And, and so the clarity uh, that we have now is, is much better than what they had. But all that to say, as far as the point is concerned, the Spirit's work of regeneration was around in the Old Testament just like it is now in the New. As a matter of fact, we know for a fact Jesus wasn't talking about um, the Spirit's regenerating work because He speaks about regeneration in the present tense in John before we get to chapter 7. So look in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, he's in the middle of this uh, argument, dialogue, and, and he says in verse 62, What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where He was before? Now we're in verse 63. It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And and we said uh, when we were here before that the words that I speak unto you, they are spiritual. They are in the spiritual realm and they are life. But the point that I want to make for this message is that Jesus says it is the spirit that quickeneth. Notice he doesn't say the Spirit will come later and quicken or the Spirit shall quicken. No, the Spirit is quickening now. The Spirit has been quickening. It is the Spirit that imparts life. What you'll notice in John chapter 7, and again, this is what we're concerned with, and the next two points will flesh out the differences, is that Jesus says in John 7, or John says he was speaking of the Spirit that had not yet. Okay, And the word given, you'll see in your Bibles, if you're looking at 739, is in italics. That's not in the original text, although I think the meaning there carries over. So, function number one, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit regenerates, brings people to faith, gives them spiritual life, And while we have more revelation now than the Old Testament saints did, the gift of faith that's given comes from the same Spirit, whether you're under the Old Covenant or the New. Okay, so that's, that doesn't change. Okay, number two, the Spirit empowers for service. So the Spirit gives life, but then the, the Spirit also empowers, gives abilities. In the New Testament, we're used to thinking about this in terms of spiritual gifts. So think about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus says there is an empowering that's going to come to you. You're going to receive this power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And the power that you're going to receive from the Holy Ghost is so that you can be witnesses. This power is you're being called into service here, being empowered to do something. And that is to be a witness. So now we're going to get to a clear distinction between Old Covenant and New Covenant. So we want to look at the Old Testament first. So in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only empowered specific people in special ways for special tasks. So what I mean by that is when you read the Old Testament, you do not find that the nation as a whole, that every individual in the nation is empowered by the Holy Spirit for some particular service. You do not find that what what we call in the New Testament spiritual gifts are given to everyone. As a matter of fact, when you read about the Holy Spirit filling someone, you usually read about that happening for a specific amount of time, for a specific task. Usually this was national leaders or spokesmen of the Lord, whether that is a prophet for a a period of time or someone else who's speaking on behalf of God. So let me give you a couple of examples of that. Uh, Number one, look in Exodus 31. Exodus 31, starting in verse 1, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uriah, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, and in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold, and in silver, and in brass, and in cunning of, uh, cutting of stones, to set them, and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, And in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom that they may make all that I have commanded thee. So God is telling Moses here, particularly about uh, Bezalel, that he had given him his spirit. He had filled him, verse 3, with the spirit of God in wisdom for what? For a particular task. He had called on Moses, or I say he had called on Moses, he had given Moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle just so. But then he had to fill a man with the ability, the skill, the wisdom 
to know how to carry that out and to do it the way that he would have it to be done. Okay, And that man was Bezalel and then the other guys that he uh, raises up as helpers. But the point is, we find that 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 uh, particularly Bezalel was filled with the Spirit of God and wisdom for a particular task so that he could uh, fulfill what God had designed for the tabernacle. Okay, then we see this again, and, and you can see this sporadically through the Old Testament, but we see it again in uh, in Judges. And, and I'm going to just read these. You can write down the references if you like. With Samson, more than just Samson, but I'm going to use Samson. <clears throat> in Judges chapter 14, um, we find a story where where the Philistines come and and they tell Samson that they they want to bind him and they want to take him back and they're not going to harm him and so Samson allows them to bind him with new cords strong cords and they begin to take him back and then it says in Judges 14:19 that the Spirit of God came upon Samson and he broke those cords. This is not the wording there, but it essentially means as if they were nothing. And then he picks up the jawbone of a donkey and he kills... Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Then he kills 30 Philistines. Now, chapter 15 is where I'm thinking, where they bind him. He breaks free of that. This is chapter 15, verse 14. Then he takes the jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand Philistines. Now, this is something that the Lord does for Samson at a particular time for a particular task. Samson judged Israel for 20 years. But here's something that we read later on you remember, Samson ends up marrying Delilah. He eventually tells her the secret to his strength. She cuts his hair. And just like many times before, Samson was asleep in her lap. She wakes him up and says, the Philistines are upon us. Samson jumps up. He's ready to go out and fight. And the text says, but he did not realize that the Lord had departed from him. We could say that the Lord's Spirit had departed from him. So this was not a permanent thing. This empowering was something that came to Samson at a particular time for a particular task. One of the other ways we would know that is because anytime you see these task being fulfilled. So you have a guy like Samson who does some amazing things in different seasons of his life or at least in different episodes. And every time he does it, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So he's coming in new and fresh ways every time for new and fresh tasks that he's completing. You see this again with King Saul. King Saul, you can turn to 1 Samuel 10. First Samuel 10. 
Um, <clears throat> In 1 Samuel 10, Saul is being anointed king. And Samuel, in verse 1, takes a vial of oil and he pours it on his head and then he begins to um, talk to Saul. And in verse 6, he tells Saul that something's going to happen. He tells him that the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee and thou shalt prophesy with them. That's with some prophets that will be coming his way. You'll prophesy with them and shall be turned into another man. And let it be when these signs are come unto thee that thou do as occasion serve for God is with thee. And then I want to jump down to um, jump down to um, verse nine. It says, and it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart and all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him and the spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. So here's the here's here's what happens. Samuel says, Saul, when you leave, this is what's going to happen. You're going to come upon these prophets. The spirit of God's going to come upon you. You're going to become another man. Really, all that. It's just another way of saying that the Spirit of God is going to transform you. You're going to be empowered to do things that you've never done before and empowered to do things that do not come from you. These are clearly things that the Spirit is empowering you to do. And so Saul goes away, and as he goes, he comes upon these prophets, and just as Samuel said, the Spirit of God comes upon him and he prophesies. But then in 1 Samuel 11, there's another scenario where the Ammonites come and um, take over and, and, and threaten the people of Jabesh. And they tell them that we're going to make this covenant with you that if you will if all the men will pluck out your right eye and give it to us then and serve us, then we won't harm you. And so the men of Jabesh write back to King Saul and say, this is what's happened. And in verse 6, it says, And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen and so forth and so on. He he rallied the people together and they went and they defeated the Ammonites. Now, what's the point? Well, the point here again is that there was a problem. Saul was needed. His leadership was needed. And the spirit comes upon him again and empowers him with wisdom and courage and how to lead and rally the men to go to war with the Ammonites and defeat them. So this is clearly a spirit-empowered thing. Again, the point that I want to make and point out, we're just, we're just picking a few out of the Old Testament, is that number one, the Spirit comes to specific people 
at specific times for specific tasks. Now, when we get into the New Covenant, what we find is the Spirit of God empowers all believers for service in God's church and God's kingdom. Okay, this is no longer a thing where um, the Spirit comes and maybe empowers the pastor to be able to preach and somehow I've got some greater measure of the Spirit than you have. That's not so in the New Testament church. Okay. I have a different gift than you have. But under the New Covenant, and we're going to look at it, We've said this before, there are no big eyes and small U's in the kingdom of God. And that's because every single born again believer has been gifted and empowered by the Holy Spirit and has a necessary contribution to the body and to the kingdom. Now, let's go to Joel 2 to see the first part of that. Joel 2. Okay, this is the this is the prophecy that's fulfilled at Pentecost in um, Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> in Joel 2, verse 28 and 29... It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Now, I want you to notice what it is that Joel is saying in this prophecy. Now, the obvious part is, I'm going to pour out my spirit. That's clear. But notice how Joel categorically goes out of his way to say, I'm going to pour out my spirit on a variety of people. Categorically, I think what Joel's doing here is saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on everyone as far as the kingdom is concerned. Notice how he says it. Upon your sons and daughters, old men, young men, servants, handmaids. Now, this is a, this is under, a, again, a context where God's Spirit and His empowerment. Notice what these people are doing. He's going to pour the Spirit out on your sons and daughters so they might do what? Prophesy. Okay, there's a gifting here. There's an empowerment to do something. Upon the old men so that what? They're going to dream dreams. Your young men are going to do what? They're going to have visions. Your servants and your handmaids, the 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 thing that's being communicated here is that there is going to be a spiritual or a spirit empowerment on all these people. They're going to be brought into service and they're going to be gifted as I pour my spirit out on them for that service. So essentially, we could say that 
all flesh, okay, that's verse 28, shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. <clears throat> What's he talking about? He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about the young and the old. He's talking about the male and the female. He's talking about the servant and the master. The New Testament goes out of its way to make sure we understand that in Christ, there is no Jew-Gentile. There is no male-female. We are all one in Christ. And how is that the case? It's because we have received the same Spirit and we have been... We're talking about two different things here. Not only have we received the same Spirit... We've also been empowered and gifted by that Spirit. Now, some look at uh, Joel twenty eight twenty nine and say that it is a fulfillment of Moses' desire back in Numbers eleven twenty nine. You'll remember this. Moses says, "Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets." and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. What's Moses? I don't know if we could say this is his prayer, but what's the sentiment of his heart here? Well, what he's saying is, is just a, a parallel. They're both meaning the same thing. That God would, that all of God's people were prophets. Well, what would that mean? It would mean that He would put His Spirit upon all of His people. Well, brothers and sisters, we're recipients of that. In the New Testament age, we know, and we're going to go to some clear New Testament texts, that we are no longer in a place to where we're wishing that God would pour His Spirit out in an empowering way on all of His people. Because the reality is, if you have been brought from death to life, under the new covenant, you've been given gifts from the ascended Christ that are meant to be used in service to His church, to His kingdom. You say, well, where do you come up with that? Glad you asked. Look in Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. Now you remember what our text said in John chapter 7 verse 39. The Spirit was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 and 8, they're picking up on that. Christ ascended and He gave gifts unto men. What, what kind of gifts? What's He talking about? Who all gets them? Well, verse 7, unto every one of us, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now the, the language here can be um, kind of a lot. So what's it, what's, what's it being said? What's being said here? 
Well, number one, Christ gives gifts. Who does He give them to? Every one of us. That is, all who are brought from death to life, all believers, all Christians have been gifted by the ascended Christ. Different gifts, but you've all been gifted by Christ. What is the source of that gift? Grace. It's not anything that you came up with. It's not anything that you decided in and of yourself. Just like God gifted the men to be skillful in the work of the tabernacle, just like God gifted and empowered uh, Samson and Saul and so many of the other Old Testament saints, you've been gifted. He even goes so far as to say, according to the measure of the gift. What does that mean? That means that it's really an incredible uh, reality that Christ has handpicked your gift and has we could think about it like you, you know, the measure there is like a, a scoop. We could think about the ice scoop. He has personally scooped out enough grace and poured on you the gift that he would have you to function in that you would serve his kingdom and his church in a way that brings glory and honor to him through the grace that he's given you through the indwelling Spirit of God. Now that's a mouthful, I know. But the point here, if you don't get any of that, is unto every one of us. Okay? Every born-again Christian has also been empowered by the Spirit with a gift or a gifting. And, and we've talked about that before. I don't necessarily think that this is a thing where everybody gets one and you spend all your life trying to overanalyze and figure out what that one is. The point is you're called into service and you've been equipped to do that by the Spirit. Secondly, you can look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> so just so the nuance here is clear, or whatever the, what the, the, the New Testament side of this is clear, in the Old Testament, there were some, few, specific people in God's kingdom who were empowered to service. In the New Testament, every single member of God's kingdom is empowered by the Spirit to serve. Okay, that's the difference. First uh, Corinthians twelve, and 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 we could also say to that or add to that: in the New Testament, you aren't just simply empowered to serve for a specific time. You've been given. Um, grace to serve God in His church, in His kingdom until the day that you die. Okay, it's a spiritual service. Okay, you may not be doing the same thing all the time, but you are serving. That's what you're called into. Service. All right, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administration, but the same Lord. 
And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man for what? To profit with all. Okay, the, the first principle here that there are many different gifts, okay, many different operations. The point is, is that the Spirit gives gifts so that it might profit with all, which is just profit the body, so that you might profit others. And then verse 11 says, but all these work that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now, the, again, the point for me going there is that if you were to read chapter 12, he's just saying we are one body made up of different gifts given by one spirit. Okay? But the fact is, the spirit has administered those gifts to everybody in different ways. This is a new covenant reality. This is something that we have in the new covenant, in the New Testament, that they did not have in the old. So we said regeneration, that's the same. You had to be regenerate in the old covenant, uh, just like you do in the new in order to have faith. We have more to work with in the new, but the regenerating work is the same. Empowerment, that's different. We have much greater, um, uh, a much greater access to as far as everyone instead of a select few being empowered than they did in the old. Now the third one is indwelling. Indwelling. Go back to John 14, 17. In John 14, 17, this is after Jesus says He's going to send the Comforter. And in verse 17, it says, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but you know Him, for He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now again, He's making a distinction here. He does dwell with you now, but He will dwell in in you then. So the probably the difficulty that we have is trying to figure out what is the difference between being regenerated by the Spirit and being indwelled by the Spirit. Isn't that the same thing? And honestly, if I were to... Um, try to nuance that out for you and give you specifically how these things are different, I don't really know. But I know this. When you look at Scripture, they are. And there is a, even though I might not be able to describe the difference, as you'll see here in a minute, there is a very meaningful reality in the New Covenant that comes with the Holy Spirit dwelling, indwelling the believer. So, for example, whenever we're thinking about this, just think Old Testament-wise. 
Where did God's presence dwell under the Old Covenant? Well, we've already mentioned this before, but God's Spirit did empower men for specific tasks, but they were not permanently indwelt by the Spirit. Matter of fact, we know for sure Samson, the presence of the Lord went from him. We know for sure that in 1 Samuel 28, 16 through 17, Samuel tells Saul that the Lord had departed from him. In Psalm 51, verse 13, David prays that God would not take his spirit from him, probably thinking about what happened to Saul. So as far as a permanent indwelling, it was not the people. Under the Old Covenant, God dwelt with His people, but He dwelt in His temple or His tabernacle. Okay, You know that already. That's not anything new. In Deuteronomy 12, turn there. And then for time's sake, some of this I won't turn to. Deuteronomy 12, God tells the people that they need to uh, utterly destroy the places where these other nations uh, set up high places and serve their gods and and so forth and so on, overthrow their altars and, and all of that. And then in verse 4 it says, you shall not do so unto the Lord your God, but unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put His name there, even unto His habitation shall you seek, and thither shalt thou come. Now the word habitation there is really just the word for dwelling. The point that's being made in Deuteronomy 12 is that where God decides to dwell is where you need to make sure you go. Okay, There is a uh, big emphasis on wherever the Lord is, His presence, wherever He's dwelling, that's where you need to be going to worship. So it was in the tabernacle. And you can, you can read, you can just jot this down. In Exodus 40... 34 through 35, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Okay, that's the presence of God. And then we know that his presence stayed there in that holy of holies. That's where he dwelled. In 1 Kings 8, 10 through 13, the glory or the presence of the Lord filled the temple. And if you read that prayer, it becomes very clear that the temple there was his dwelling place. That's where he was. That's why people made these trips into Jerusalem for the feast. Why couldn't they just have their feast wherever they were? It was because God's presence was in a geographical location. He dwelt in the temple with his people, but in the temple. Where does God's presence dwell in the New Covenant. Well, you know the answer to that already. In the Old Testament, 
God dwelt in particular locations. But in the New Testament, we've seen this in John chapter 4 already. He no longer dwells in geographical or residential locations. He dwells in His people. So that Jesus would tell the Samaritan woman, there's coming a day where you will not go to Jerusalem, but the people of God who will worship Him must come to Him in spirit and in truth. The true worshipers must come to Him in this way. So we see in the New Testament that God's presence um, begins to shift. In John 1, we read about the incarnation and we're told that that Jesus uh, came and dwelt or tabernacled among us. So God's presence was no longer in the temple. His presence was in a person. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. And then, after Jesus ascends and the Spirit comes in this new way, God's people become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, these are all theological categories you're familiar with. As God's people are filled or indwelt with the Holy Spirit, this is the reason. We think about this from a functional standpoint. This is the reason why this church could get knocked down by a tornado tomorrow and we could meet in somebody's backyard And as far as our access to God goes, nothing's changed. This is also the reason why you could get stranded on a desert island somewhere and not have access to anyone or anything. And yet your access to God has not changed. Why? Because you are the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit has made His permanent dwelling, His permanent habitation in you. And the Spirit is at work, as Peter calls us, living stones, building us up, Ephesians chapter 2, into a habitation for God as the church. But this only happens through individuals who are indwelled by the Holy Ghost. So John chapter 14 is a helpful helpful comparison here. John chapter 14. Notice what what Jesus says here. In John 14, verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, 
and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That is, make our dwelling with him. So if a man loves me, he's going to keep my words. My father will love him. We will come to him. We will make our abode with him. Now, this is unmistakably similar to what God says to Solomon in 1 Kings 6. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 11, it says, And the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which thou art building, that's the temple, if thou wilt walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then will I perform my word with thee, which I spake unto David my, thy father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and he finished it. You notice, you notice what's being said here. It says, if you would build a house for me, then build it. But you're going to have to do more than just build a structure. You have to keep my word. You have to walk with me. And if you do that, then I will dwell with you. How? In the temple. Well, Jesus in John 14, 23, essentially says the same thing to the believer that the father, that God said to Solomon, and he's speaking to us as if we're the temple because we are. If a man loves me, he'll keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. And so what's the what's the meaningful difference here? Well, the difference is you are the temple of the living God and the Holy Spirit abides with you and in you. And you have become his permanent dwelling so that Hebrews 13, 5 could be a reality. This I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Where can you go and escape or get away from the presence of the Lord? The answer is there's nowhere you can go. He's with you. He's in you. He's made you his abode. Now, we could go through each of these three categories, the regeneration, the empowerment for service, the indwelling, and we could tease out all kinds of applications. Um, but for the sake of the, 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 the message this morning, we're not going to do that. Jesus says, or John says, the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In what way was He not yet given? in the way of empowerment, the way that we have Him now, so that every living stone has been given a gift by God or gifts by God to serve Him and His people. How else was He going to be given that He was not yet? A permanent indwelling where you and I don't have to go to Jerusalem. You know, there's and and for whatever reason it's it is what it is as far as names go but you hear about holy sites and holy lands and that kind of thing 
Well, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer means there is no such thing as a holy land. There are no sites that are holy. There are people who are holy. God's presence now is with people, not geographic locations. There's nothing mystically special about anything geographical. There is something very mystically special about a group of believers who gather together or even a single believer who comes to God through the Spirit. And so, what do we do with all this aside from trying to parse out doctrinal details? Well, I think 1 Peter helps us and that's where we'll end. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What do we do with these realities? Well, what we've been talking about this morning really is Part of verse 4. To the believer, we're talking about your inheritance. We're talking about what we've been given that is far superior than what those in the Old Covenant had been given. We're talking about the blessings of the resurrected Christ that have been bestowed upon His people so that we might... Remember, the Holy Spirit's job is to facilitate the relationship of the believer to God through Christ. What does that mean? That means under the new dispensation, under the new uh, era of the Spirit, you have access to draw closer to God than any Old Testament saint ever thought of because His Spirit is in you, giving you life, making you His temple, His permanent dwelling place, and empowering you for service. So may God bless us to receive that both as a blessing and as a challenge that we might live out what the Lord has called us to be and what He has equipped us to be through the indwelling power of His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, <clears throat> we thank You for these realities that we've talked about this morning. Much more could be said about them. Uh, but Lord, enough has been said that we just want to say thank You. Uh, Father, what a blessing to live on this side of the cross. What a blessing to live in fellowship with believers who have been empowered and gifted by the Spirit for the edification of the body. What a blessing to be able to live on this side of the cross where, our, where we have become the temples of the living God the permanent dwelling place of the Spirit so that we're made alive through His work. We are indwelt with His power. We are also indwelt with His presence. Father, would You bless us to be able to recognize what a blessing that is that we might return to You in praise. In Jesus' name, Amen.